Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Ken Impress. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's John Knox Stalwart Courage. Listen to the full audiobook today on the Canon app. Part 1 The Life of John Knox. Chapter 1 Understanding the Times. Oh God, give me Scotland or I die. John Knox. For if the fire be without heat, or the burning lamp without light, then true faith may be without fervent prayer. John Knox. And here I call my God to record that neither profit to myself, hatred of any person or persons, nor affection or favor that I bear towards any private man, causes me this day to speak as you have heard. John Knox. By any reckoning, Scotland was a spiritual badlands. The people were barbaric and superstitious, the clergy were grossly immoral, and rank ignorance of biblical truth had settled in holy places ostensibly dedicated to the preservation of God's word. The church was the center of Scottish medieval life, and that church was thoroughly corrupt. Of this time, Thomas McCree observed, The kingdom swarmed with ignorant, idle, luxurious monks who, like locusts, devoured the fruits of the earth, and filled the air with pestilential infection. The fact of this ecclesiastical corruption is not a view held only by those sympathetic to the doctrines of the Reformation. The widespread corruption was simply a fact, acknowledged by honest men on both sides. A very able and winsome Roman priest named Ninon Winzet, a strong opponent of Knox, admitted that this gross and blackened condition of the church provoked the Reformation. He acknowledged that the bishops and clergy in the age prior to the Reformation were ignorant or vicious or both, and were unworthy of the name of pastors. In this climate of darkness, young noblemen of royal lineage named Patrick Hamilton became the first prominent martyr of the Reformation in Scotland. Born in 1504, he was set apart to the clergy according to the custom of the times. The Abbacy of Fern bestowed upon him in his childhood. Such livings, footnote, in the Church of England, the term living means an income as a parish minister, end of footnote, were not opportunities for feeding the flock of Christ, rather they were a source of predictable and easy income. Nevertheless, as early as 1526, light began to dawn in his mind. His condemnations of the clerical corruption aroused some suspicion, so we left Scotland to travel on the continent. An act of Parliament on July 17, 1525, had banned the importation of Luther's books in Scotland, a land that had always, as they put it, been clean of all sick filth and vice, been clean of all such filth and vice. The connection between the circulation of such material and the dawning light in Patrick Hamilton's mind is not hard to imagine. While on the continent, he found his way to Wittenberg where he met with both Luther and Melanchthon, impressing them both with his zeal. After studying a short time at the university in Marburg, he, being a zealous young man, determined to return to Scotland with the gospel. Upon his arrival, Archbishop Beaton betrayed him and threw him into prison. Footnote. Not to be confused with his nephew and successor. End of footnote. At his trial, he defended himself with remarkable courage and patience. He was condemned, 
and consigned to the flames on the last day of February in 1528. At this time, John Knox was about 13 years old. The martyr was not very old himself, only 24 when he died. His last words were, How long, O Lord, shall darkness cover this realm? How long wilt thou suffer this tyranny of men? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. A martyr of noble birth created even more interest in the new doctrines. The novel opinions continued to spread, and the officials, alarmed, adopted a policy of vigorous persecution. In the decade between 1530 and 1540, many able and honest men gave their lives for confessing the truth. Numerous others fled to the continent, few of them ever returning. During this time, it does not appear that there was a single public teacher of the truth in Scotland. The word spread rapidly anyway, largely due to the importation of Tyndale's translation of the scriptures along with many Protestant books. The authorities resisted this new knowledge with a stiff, bloodthirsty, and unyielding blindness. Bishop Crichton of Dunkeld is reported by Fox as saying that he thanked God that he never knew what the Old and New Testaments were. Even though the incident is apocryphal, the fact that the expression subsequently became proverbial in Scotland indicated how widespread such clerical ignorance was. Though deplorably ignorant of the Bible, the ecclesiastical officials nonetheless clearly understood the threat presented by the new Protestant doctrines. In response to that threat, the authorities were quite prepared to use as much force as they thought it might take to suppress them. As events turned out, it took more than they had. The pressures building toward Reformation were enormous. Another important force preparing for the Reformation was, surprisingly, the work of poets and playwrights. A corrupt clergy is always good for a few laughs. Those with the power to persecute were forced to tolerate ridicule of this form in a way they did not tolerate midnight Bible readings. Her own corruption and the widespread mockery of that corruption greatly diminished the moral authority of the church. The bishops repeatedly sought laws against lampooning, but the mockery was impossible to stop. Just imagine today a law forbidding any jokes at the expense of televangelists. By 1540, a reforming zeal was widespread among a multitude of commoners and a significant number of the Scottish nobility. As the later history of Scotland shows, some of the nobility were motivated by a hunger for church lands, and it has been easy for some to dismiss the Reformation because of the obvious greed factor. It is true that the Reformation was manipulated, later, by some, but at this early date, an acceptance of the gospel was much more likely to end in fire or exile than in rich landed estates. The Reformation in Scotland was born and nourished through a hunger for truth. Before turning to consider the life and leadership of John Knox during this time, one must address another background consideration. Many have difficulty understanding this era because they have never successfully identified all the key figures, particularly the Marys. As the fellow once said, you can't tell the players without the scorecard. Mary of Guise was the queen regent who ruled Scotland after the death of her husband, James V. Their daughter, also named Mary, was taken to France and raised there in the Roman Catholic faith. When she returned in 1561 and ascended the throne, she became known as Mary, Queen of Scots. Neither mother nor daughter should be confused with Queen Mary, Tudor of England, daughter of Henry VIII, who reigned from 1553 to 1558, 
and, because of her persecuting zeal against the Protestants, became known as Bloody Mary. After her death, she was succeeded by her sister, Elizabeth I. Footnote, not to be confused with Elizabeth II, who is reigning in England right now. End of footnote. John Knox was exiled from Scotland under Mary of Guise, fled from England when Bloody Mary took the throne, and returned to Scotland for his famous encounters with Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots, married the nobleman Lord Darnley, and their son was crowned James VI of Scotland in his infancy. Knox preached his coronation sermon. Later, after the death of Elizabeth I of England, James assumed the crown of England as well, becoming James I of England, the well-known James of the King James Version of the Bible. Various spellings and titles cause another minor problem for moderns. For example, Mary Queen of Scots had a half-brother named James Stuart, with a U. In some sources, his name is spelled James Stuart, with an E-W. And because he became the Earl of Moray, he is also called Moray, or Murray. During the minority of James VI, he was appointed to rule Scotland as regent. It's not hard to see how the modern reader might find himself reading about the same individual under many differing titles. The story before us is a fascinating and exciting one. With these and other minor distractions set aside, we should find the biblical lessons in the courageous leadership of John Knox to be inspiring indeed. Chapter 2 Early Life and Education Details about John Knox's early life are few, and some are contradictory. Early biographers believe he was born around 1505, but the consensus now is that he was born circa 1515, probably at Haddington. Though he obviously received a liberal education, where he was educated is also uncertain. Theodore Beza, a contemporary of Knox, says that he studied under John Major at the University of St. Andrews, but there is no record of him having matriculated in the defective records of St. Andrews. A certain John Knox entered the University of Glasgow in 1522, but for various reasons, this is not likely to be our Knox. All in all, Knox probably studied at St. Andrews. If he studied under John Major, he studied under one of the great scholastic minds of the time. Major was a very capable exponent of a particular view of church government which denied supremacy to the papacy, and John Knox's peer George Buchanan, who also studied under Major, learned some of these early lessons very well. Footnote. This was the view that defended the decrees of the Council of Constance and the liberties of the Gallican church over against the papacy. One of the most common modern errors about the medieval period is the assumption that papal claims were unquestioned and unchallenged. But Major, who was no Protestant, staunchly opposed the claims of the papacy. In this, he had much in common with many medieval thinkers. End of footnote. But Knox soon began to reject the convoluted scholasticism which dominated academic circles at that time, and turned his attention ad fontes, back to the original sources of scripture and the early fathers. Although better than many of his time, Major was also capable of scholastic gnat strangling, and Knox soon turned away from this teaching. Far from being a rejection of church tradition, the Reformation was a self-conscious return to earlier traditions, the teachings of the New Testament and the early church fathers, 
One historical observer makes this very important point. New reforms were initiated in the leading cities of the Reformation, which reflected the conviction that pure worship must be according to the Scripture, and consequently simple, spiritual, and intelligent. Intensive study of Scripture and patristic sources over the next two decades, as well as regular interaction among the leading reformers, resulted in a more thorough reform. This impulse to return to the ways of the ancient church was strong in Knox. He was not content with the excerpts of the fathers contained in medieval anthologies, so he sought out the original works, in particular the writings of Jerome and Augustine. As McCree points out, in Jerome he found a method of study which greatly attracted him, returning to the scriptures as the source of all truth, and an emphasis on studying them in the original languages. From reading Augustine, Knox quickly learned how a man may be greatly honored in name while studiously ignored in substance. These profound intellectual influences were beginning to accumulate in Knox before he broke with the Roman Catholic Church. He was a reformation waiting to happen. He began working as a papal cleric around 1540. Just a few years later, in 1543, he gave up this position. Sometime prior to 1540, Knox had been ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. As late as 1543, he had still signed himself as a minister of the Holy Altar. He gave no public support to the cause of the Reformation until 1545. These years were obviously the years of transition, with Knox's conversion probably occurring sometime around 1543. Somewhere in this time period, John Knox first heard the gospel from a preacher named Thomas Guillaume, or Williams. This preacher had been a prominent black friar of the Dominican order, but had come to embrace the sentiments of the reformers. As a result of Knox's conversion, Cardinal Beaton condemned him as a heretic and employed assassins to waylay him. The Lord brought him under the protection of Hugh Douglas of Lagnandry, and his life was spared. To understand Knox's conversion, we have to understand far more than what modern evangelicals would call a personal testimony. There were, of course, the personal elements present, but there were profound cultural aspects as well. The new learning of the Renaissance and the Reformation, which were not so tidily separated at that time as they are now in European history survey courses, had an intoxicating effect. In addition, the sense of sheer cultural liberation from a millennium of efforts at self-salvation was monumental. As C.S. Lewis stated it, We want, above all, to know what it felt like to be an early Protestant. We moderns would have said here, influenced by our strong individualism, what it felt like to be a new Christian. But far more is involved than just personal liberation. Continuing, Lewis says this, All the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace. And all will continue to be free, unbounded grace. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be as helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. He is not saved because he does works of love. He does works of love because he is saved. It is faith alone that has saved him. Faith bestowed by sheer gift. From this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self with all its good resolutions, anxieties, scruples, and motive scratchings, all the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. Buoyant humility. This understanding of grace was immediately and radically applied to the world by the early reformers. 
They looked beyond their own individual circumstances. In this respect, medieval men saw that their newly recovered faith had to be understood as a public possession, and this is why there was an enormous cultural convulsion. In 1542, James V of Scotland died after a disastrous raid on the English, which threw Scotland into political turmoil. During the last two years of his reign, the number of Protestants had been increasing significantly, and the established clergy were urging James V to undertake quite a vigorous persecution. The death of James left the two factions at a standoff. The Earl of Arran, a very vocal Protestant, became Regent of Scotland. However, in the Scotland of that day, treachery was an art form, and the Earl soon publicly abjured the Protestant religion. Negotiations to marry the future Queen of Scots, still in her childhood, to Edward, the son of Henry VIII of Protestant England, were consequently broken off. Soon after this, the young Mary was betrothed to the Dauphin of France, the future King Francis II, and was sent there to be reared and educated. Her upbringing there in a court thoroughly loyal to the papacy was to have a profound impact on Scotland in the years to come. At this critical time for Scotland, we find the first appearance of John Knox standing with the cause of the Reformation, but surprisingly, not in the pulpit. Chapter 3. Wissert's Bodyguard George Wissert had been teaching the Greek New Testament in Montrose, and suspicion of heresy soon fell on him. The Bishop of Brecon summoned Wissert, who withdrew instead to England. He resided for about six years at the University of Cambridge before returning to Scotland in 1544 and beginning an itinerant preaching ministry. He returned to a tempestuous situation, but was not of a tumultuous spirit himself. We have two accounts of Wissert's character, one from John Knox and the other from a student of Wissert's at Cambridge named Emery Tilney. According to Tilney, Wissert was courteous, lowly, lovely, glad to teach, desirous to learn. Knox paints a similar portrait. A man of such graces as before him one never had within this realm, yea, and are rare to be found yet in any man, notwithstanding this great light of God, that since his days he's shined unto us. Scotland was in turmoil for a number of reasons, political and religious, together. After the death of James V, the nation divided into two factions. One party aligned with France and the other party favored England. The established church was a strong advocate of the French alliance, with the Protestants sympathetic to Protestant England. At the same time, the position of the Protestants was tenuous because England was in truth Scotland's historical adversary and the ambitions of England's king, Henry VIII, made the situation even more complicated. It would probably not have taken a lot to convince Henry to ascend the throne of Scotland had it been offered. The pride of England made even some of the Protestants nervous. There's good reason to believe that Knox was in this number. There were wheels within wheels. The Earl of Arran recanted his Protestantism in part because he was alarmed at an argument presented to him by his illegitimate brother, John Hamilton. He alarmed Arran by reminding him that the legality of his mother's marriage, and therefore his own legitimacy, depended on the validity of the divorce granted by the Pope to his father from a former wife. If the papal authority were repudiated by Scotland, then the regent was a bastard with no legal claim either to the earldom 
to the regency, or to the throne. All this serves to show how tangled the religious, personal, and political questions were. Possible to distinguish, but impossible to separate. So when George Wishart returned to Scotland, the party favoring France was in power. But certain powerful lords of the English faction afforded him some measure of protection. One of those lords was Hugh Douglas, protector of John Knox and father of the boys whom Knox was tutoring. During a five-week stay in Lothian, Wissert stayed at the house of Douglas. Knox had many opportunities to hear him preach and to confer with him privately. Whenever Wissert was preaching in his area of the country, Knox accompanied and heard him gladly. During a visit to Dundee, Knox described a very serious situation with the dry humor of Scott's understatement. While he was spending his life to comfort the afflicted, the devil ceased not to stir up his own son, the cardinal, again who corrupted by money a desperate priest named Sir John Wigton to slay the said master George, who looked not to himself in all things so circumspectly as worldly men would have wished. Knox went on to recount how this priest approached Wissert with a short sword under his gown. Wissert saw him and said, My friend, what would ye do? And put his hand on the priest's hand and took his dagger from him. The priest confessed what he was about to do, and the surrounding crowd grew violent, and demanded the traitor be delivered over to them. But Wissert took the aspiring assassin in his arms and said, Whosoever troubles him shall trouble me, for he has hurt me in nothing. But he has done great comfort both to you and me. To wit, he has let us understand what we may fear in times to come. We will watch better. And so he saved the life of the one who was going to take his. The resolution to watch better was also remembered. After the assassination attempt at Dundee, a bodyguard was assigned to protect Wissert. In the accounts, we see that role falling to Knox, who carried a two-edged broadsword to protect the evangelist. On the night he was captured, Wissert directed that this sword be taken away from Knox. The latter asked permission to accompany him to his next destination, which Wissert denied. By this time, Wissert was under a very strong burden a heavy presentiment of his approaching martyrdom. He told Knox, Nay, return to your bairns, and God bless you, ain is sufficient for a sacrifice. Footnote. This is as good a time as any to apologize for the variations of spelling and usage. Different sources modernize the language and spelling in different ways and to differing extent. Bairns, meaning children, refers to Knox's pupils, and ain means one. End of footnote. The Earl of Bothwell betrayed Wissert, and he was delivered into the hands of the cardinal, then given a mock trial, in which he was insulted and spat upon by his judges. Wissert was condemned to the stake as an obstinate heretic. He was scheduled to be executed near the castle of St. Andrews with all the guns of the castle trained on the place to prevent any attempted rescue from any quarter. The front tower of the palace was decked out with cushions, so that the cardinal and his clergy could enjoy the show. Wissert gave his last testimony as the fire was lit. This flame has scorched my body, yet hath it not daunted my spirit. But he who from yonder high place beholdest us with such pride shall within a few days lie in the same as ignominiously as now he is seen proudly to rest himself. The fire was started. 
Wissert was mercifully strangled, and the flames consumed his body. But this remarkable prophecy at the close of his life came to an astonishing fulfillment and was closely connected to John Knox's call to the ministry. Chapter 4 The Assassination Just several months after Wissert's execution, the castle at St. Andrews was captured by a band of Protestant conspirators. One of the chief conspirators was a man named John Leslie, who had vowed to avenge the death of Wissert. A report of trouble had come to the cardinal's ears, but he thought himself completely secure in his castle. The conspirators approached the castle early on a Saturday morning. The prior evening, the cardinal had been busy at his accounts with Mistress Mary and Ogilvy that night, as Knox put it. About sixteen men surprised the porter and forced their way into the castle. The cardinal, awakened by the shouting, asked from the window what the noise meant. The reply came that the castle had been taken, and so the cardinal locked himself in his chamber, piled the furniture against the door, and armed himself with a two-handed sword. John Leslie came to the door and demanded to be let in. The cardinal refused, and fire was brought, and either the cardinal or his chamber boy opened the door. The cardinal cried out, I am a priest! I am a priest! Ye will not slay me! John Leslie struck him, as did another conspirator, but a third man, James Melville, perceiving them to be in a collar, that is, in a temper, pulled them back. He said, This work and judgment of God, although it be secret, ought to be done with greater gravity. Melville then presented the cardinal with the point of the sword and demanded, Repent thee of thy former wicked life, but especially of shedding the blood of that notable instrument of God, Master George Wissert, which, albeit the flame of fire consumed before men, yet cries it a vengeance upon thee, and we from God are sent to revenge it. For here before my God I protest that neither the heterant hatred of thy person, the love of thy riches, nor the fear of any trouble thou would have to me in particular, move nor moves me to strike thee, but only because thou hast been and remain an obstinate enemy against Christ Jesus and its holy evangel. Then, as Knox relates the story, Melville struck the cardinal two or three times. The cardinal cried out, I am a priest! I am a priest! Fie! Fie! All is gone! A commotion arose in the town and people gathered outside the wall. They were told to disperse because the cardinal was dead. But the people said they would not go unless they saw him. So the body of the cardinal was brought to the wall and he was shown dead over the wall. And the words of the martyr Wissert came to a very unusual fulfillment. While Knox was not involved in this conspiracy against the cardinal's life, there is no question but that he heartily approved of it. After his description of the death of the cardinal, he stops to give an important warning. These things we write merrily, but we would that the reader should observe God's just judgments, and how that he can deprehend the worldly wise in their own wisdom, make their table to be a snare to trap their own feet, and their own presupposed strength to be their own destruction. These are the works of our God, whereby he would admonish the tyrants of this earth, that in the end he will be revenged of their cruelty, what strength soever they make in the contrary. This approach is honestly problematic for many modern Christians. Commenting on Knox's boisterous and ferocious sense of humor, C.S. Lewis says this of Knox's comment that he was writing merrily. 
He was apparently afraid lest the fun of the thing might lead us to forget that even an assassination may have its serious side. The whole incident seems surreal to us. On this question, Knox was certainly able to defend himself ably with an appeal to biblical precedent. The example of Ehud comes to mind. But the problem still nags at us. Too often, at this point, even men who appreciate Knox will back away. They will say, for example, that Knox was essentially a man of his time. This is quite true, but also beside the point. Was it right or wrong according to the only final standard that Knox would accept, which is to say the word of God? However, even here the problem seems to us to be even worse. How can we even think about justifying the shedding of blood in the name of the Bible? Beneath our difficulty with this situation, we should not be surprised to find a tangled raft of contemporary assumptions. For a good example of this, contrast our problem with our response to the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A valiant German pastor, he distinguished himself in his opposition to Hitler, and early in the war became a conspirator against the Third Reich. He worked as a courier for a group that made an attempt on Hitler's life in 1944. His connection with the plot was discovered, and he was executed in 1945. Although Bonhoeffer faced stiff opposition in his own time, in his own nation, in the aftermath of the war, Christians have almost universally applauded him for his role in the assassination attempt. Faith without works is dead. This does not trouble us because we all know how evil Hitler was. Therefore, this necessarily means that our problem is not with assassination per se. Rather, our problem has more to do with the standard used to make the determination to commit it. Somewhere, C.S. Lewis makes a comment relevant to this discussion when he says that we moderns like to take credit for not burning witches. But the reason we do not burn them, he argues, is that we do not believe in them. We do execute traitors, Lewis observed, because we all recognize the damage a traitor can do. We all understand how evil Hitler was, so we admire Bonhoeffer, but well trained by the assumptions of modernity, we do not understand the context of the Reformation and the nature of the conflict whenever it came to blood. Usually brutal arrogance in the judge confronts brutal courage in the prisoner. We believe all religious disputes are in the last analysis debates over nothing, and because we have forgotten the history of our culture, we are unaware of how massive the machinery of oppression was in Knox's day. Thus Knox's approval of this event is seen as that of a religious fanatic and not as that of a freedom fighter. The wickedness of this particular cardinal was notorious. He was not simply corrupt, but bloodthirsty as well. To take just one example of his character, once, while traveling, he instigated the governor to hang four honest men for eating a goose on Friday. He even had a young woman drowned because she refused to pray the Our Lady during the birth of her child. Knox reported that the woman, having a suchking babe upon her breast, was drowned. One final thought is perhaps worth considering. Because Knox was a man of his times, he did share certain blind spots and assumptions with his contemporaries. But he also had a much better view of the evil he was fighting than we do. Five hundred years from now, we should not be surprised if some Christians have a problem with Bonhoeffer as well for trying to kill someone over a mere political difference. Chapter 5. Call to the Ministry After the death of the Cardinal, the conspirators, the Castilians, remained holed up in St. Andrew's Castle, 
which was formidable and easy to defend. In addition, the assassins had taken James, Lord Hamilton, at the time a boy about eight years old, as a hostage. As with some modern hostage situations, a negotiated agreement was worked out, which included as one of its terms the settlement that the Castilians would keep the castle until the governor and the authority of Scotland could obtain an absolution for them from the Pope for the killing of the Cardinal. In the meantime, John Knox was moving around Scotland. Because he was a wanted man, he, wearied of moving from place to place, and eventually decided to take refuge in the castle. The fathers of the boys he had been tutoring encouraged him in this so that he would have the protection of the castle and their sons would have the benefit of hearing him teach again. So Knox resumed his teaching duties, which he says included work for the boys in their grammar and other humane authors, along with a catechism. In addition, Knox taught them from the Gospel of John, but did this in the castle chapel at a set hour. As a result of this public teaching, others in the palace had an opportunity to observe his teaching ability. John Roth, the man who was serving as a preacher for the band, was one of those who took notice, and he earnestly asked Knox to take the preaching place upon him. But John Knox utterly refused, saying that he would not run where God had not called him. By this he meant that he would do nothing without a lawful calling. A council convened, and those who wanted Knox to preach determined that they would provide that lawful calling. And so John Roth preached a sermon, the sum of which was that a congregation, and a congregation consisted of any which passed the number of two or three, had authority over a man in whom they perceived the gifts of God. And when they called such a one, it was dangerous to refuse to hear the voice of those who desired to be instructed. Having laid out the points of his sermon, John Roth then turned to make application to John Knox in particular, and publicly issued John Knox's call to the ministry. This call is worth quoting in full. Brother, ye shall not be offended, albeit that I speak unto you that which I have in charge, even from all those that are here present, which is this, in the name of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of these that presently calls you by mouth, I charge you that ye refuse not this holy vocation, but that as ye tender the glory of God, the increase of Christ his kingdom, the edification of your brethren, and the comfort of me, whom ye understand well enough to be oppressed by the multitude of labors, that ye take upon you the public office and charge of preaching, even as ye look to avoid God's heavy displeasure, and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. Roth then asked the congregation whether this did not represent their desire. They replied that they approved of the calling. At this point, John Knox hardly fulfills the popular caricature of him as a stern reformer. He burst into most abundant tears and withdrew to his chamber. From that point to the first time when he appeared to preach in public, Knox was visibly shaken, his countenance showing the grief and trouble of his heart. He was, by all accounts, a most reluctant aspirant to the ministry. The first occasion for this public ministry was not long in coming, however. John Roth was a good man, but relatively unlearned. He was sound in doctrine, but his literary accomplishments were moderate. Knox, by contrast, was thoroughly educated and a formidable debater. Before proceeding, we must understand that this was not a modern hostage situation, surrounded by SWAT teams. The Castilians held the castle, but they still had time to come out for theological debates. One papist, a man named Dean John Annand, 
had greatly troubled John Roth in his preaching, and Knox had helped Roth behind the scenes. Now, John Knox would soon collide with Anand in a public debate in the parish kirk of St. Andrews. Knox badly mangled Anand's reputation as a result of this debate, which concerned the authority of the church. Anand said what he had to say and then withdrew. Knox then offered himself to prove in words or writing that the in words or writing that the Roman church was farther degenerated from the purity of the days of the apostles than the Jews had been when they crucified Christ. This stirred the people greatly, and so they asked John Knox to preach the following Sunday, which he did. In that sermon, John In that sermon, Knox preached with great rhetorical effect showing that the Roman church was to be considered as the synagogue of Satan. He pulled no punches, and one response to the sermon noted that others merely snipped at the outer branches of the papistry, but he strikes at the root to destroy the whole. This was an accurate summary. From his first sermon, John Knox set the pattern for the rest of his life. He was no temporizer. To have John Knox thundering in the church at St. Andrews caused a problem. The bishop of St. Andrews, not yet consecrated, wrote to the subprior of the church, a man named Winram, wondering why such heretical and schismatical doctrines were tolerated there without rebuke. Winram was more than a little friendly to the Reformed party, but it would not do to provoke the incoming bishop. He therefore convened a hearing, summoned Knox and Roth, asked a few nominal questions to discharge his responsibilities in the affair, and then turned the remaining questions over to a Greyfriar, a member of a branch of the Franciscan religious order, named Arbuckle. Arbuckle set out to prove the divine authority of the Roman ceremonies, but was soon reduced to the shift of saying that the apostles were not inspired when they wrote the epistles, but were inspired when they established the ceremonies to be handed down. In short, the first verbal battles of the Reformation of Scotland were won by those with Protestant convictions. But we must return to our political crisis, because it determines the events that immediately follow. Knox was able to defeat a monk in debate, but was not able to overcome the French military, which was soon to arrive. The motives of the assassins had been a mix, religious, personal, and political. The fact that John Knox approved of the assassination of the cardinal did not mean that he approved of all the Castilians. Far from it. Knox was not ever one to show partiality. From the first opportunity he had in the public ministry of the word, he condemned sin everywhere he saw it, and there was plenty inside the castle. His theme to his cohorts was that their corrupt life could not escape punishment of God. Knox knew that the castle was bound to fall because of the sinfulness of the Castilian band. His views on this were determined by a fixed understanding of scripture, at the heart of which was his conviction that God is not mocked and that a man reaps what he sows. When things were going well for the Castilians and they boasted in it, Knox replied that they did not see what he saw, and when they bragged about the thickness of the castle walls, Knox said the walls were eggshells. Not surprisingly, Knox was proven correct. A French force arrived by sea, and the castle was assaulted, the battle going badly for the Castilians. Under duress, the Castilians surrendered upon terms. Their lives were to be spared, and they were to be transported to France and forced into the service of the French king. If they did not want to serve him, they were to be conveyed to any country of their choice other than Scotland. But treachery was in the air. 
Once the prisoners had been taken, they were all shipped off to row in the galleys. And despite Knox's faithfulness, he was taken with them and set to the oars. Footnote. John Rolfe had left the castle before it was besieged and made his way to England. He supported himself and his wife by knitting caps and stockings. He was elected the pastor of a church in hiding, which was betrayed to the authorities a few weeks later. He was tried and burned at the stake in December of 1557. He was a simple man and a wonderful Christian. End of footnote. Chapter 6. Galley Slave Warren Lewis, brother of C.S. Lewis, makes the point bluntly. Until the coming of the concentration camp, the galley held an undisputed preeminence as the darkest blot on Western civilization. A galley, said a poetic observer shudderingly, would cast a shadow in the blackest midnight. Lewis was writing of life in the galleys a century after Knox had rowed in them, but from all accounts, the time Knox spent there was a time of horror, just as it was for his Huguenot brothers a hundred years later. Life on board when the galley was at sea was a sort of hell's picnic, but there was really no accommodation for anyone. For the convicts, there was, of course, no question of sleep. Cooking facilities were primitive, and, as no one ever washed, the ship crawled with vermin from stem to stern. From below came the constant clank of chains, the crack of whips on bare flesh, screams of pain and savage growls. At each oar, all five men must rise as one. At each stroke, push the eighteen feet oar forward, dip it in the water, and pull with all their force, dropping into a sitting position at the end of each stroke. One would not think, says a Huguenot convict, that it was possible to keep it up for half an hour, and yet I have rowed full out for twenty-four hours without pausing for a single moment. Constant rowing did not bring about the despair of the galley slaves. Had it, they would all have died in short order. Nevertheless, the whole time, including respite provided by winter, must have been the most severe trial. Knox speaks of it as a time of torment. Years after, he spoke of the sobs of his heart and how he was sore troubled by corporal infirmity. For those who have not experienced such things, all such words should be taken as an understatement. Knox was for two years a gaillerion, a French galley slave, a very common and expendable form of cheap fuel. As they were taken away to the galleys, Knox recounts that the joy of the papists, both of Scotland and France, was at that time in full perfection. He relates their song of triumph over the Protestants. Priests continue now, priests continue now, for Norman and his company has filled the galleys foul, full. As prisoners they could be forced to row for a Roman Catholic power. However, they refused to accommodate themselves to the Roman religion in any way. In his history, Knox relates one representative of their very Scottish resistance to idolatry. Though in the course of the story Knox does not state it outright, the prisoner involved is probably Knox himself. Sometimes the mass was said on galleys, and sometimes on shore alongside the galleys within the hearing of the slaves. On Saturday nights the Salve Regina was sung, and all the Scots would cover their heads with whatever caps or hoods they had available. 
On one occasion, after they had arrived at Nantes, the salve was sung, and an idol of Mary they called Notre Dame, Our Lady, was presented to one of the prisoners in chains, and he was required to kiss it. He replied gently, Trouble me not, for such an idol is accursed, and therefore I will not touch it. Instead, his captors responded that he would handle it, thrust it into his face, and put it between his hands. Seeing his opportunity, the prisoner threw the idol into the river and said, Let our lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn to swim. After this, Knox relates, no Scottish man was urged to participate in that particular form of idolatry. Knox compared this time in the galleys with the Jewish exile into Babylon. He placed a great importance upon the prisoners keeping themselves pure from idolatry during this time of testing. They were prisoners of conscience. In the winter of 1548, a Protestant captive on land named Henry Balnaves had written a treatise on justification by faith. Somehow, he had managed to get it to Knox, who, in spite of circumstances, managed to edit it and write a commendatory epistle. The work, thus revised, was dispatched to Scotland. The irony was not lost on Knox, who spoke of it with a grim humor. He was not oblivious to the oddity of the situation, incommodity of place as well as imbecility of mind. In the summer of 1548, the galleys that contained our prisoners were sitting off the east coast of Scotland. One of Knox's fellow prisoners pointed out the spires of St. Andrews and asked Knox if he knew the place. The reply was one of Knox's famous prophecies, which we will discuss later in the book. Knox said, Yes, I know it well, for I see the steeple of that place where God first opened my mouth in public to his glory, and I am fully persuaded how weak soever I now appear, that I shall not depart this life till that my tongue shall glorify his godly name in the same place. How these words came about, we shall soon see. During this time, some of the Castilians of greater importance had been taken to prison instead of the galleys. One of them, William Kirkcaldy, wrote to John Knox to seek his counsel. The question was whether they could break out of prison in good conscience. Knox's reply to this question is revealing in a number of respects. He said, That if without the blood of any shed or spilt by them for their deliverance, they might set themselves at freedom, that they might safely take it. But to shed any man's blood for their freedom, thereto would he never consent. Far from being a bloodthirsty religious fanatic, Knox was consistently a man of conscience. After receiving the advice, Kirkaldi and some others escaped successfully without blood. John Knox was released from the galleys after 19 months and came afterward to England. Although we do not have the details, he was probably released due to negotiations initiated by England, culminating in an exchange of prisoners. As a result, all of the Castilians were released with the exception of James Melville, the man who had actually killed the cardinal. He had died a natural death before the time of their release. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full audiobook, John Knox, Stalwart Courage, now available on the Canon app.